This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hello, everyone. Once again, my name is Kevin Navratel, a Global Education Director, and I appreciate all of you for coming today. I appreciate your patience. Um, if you haven't heard, uh, we don't have an internet connection in the two videos uh, that I had that I wanted to play are only available uh, online. So we might have to just do without those. Um, but I, I just wanted to start out and tell you a little bit about why I put this event together and then talk a little bit about some of the data that I, I do have that I can share without the videos. Um, so first of all, I, I thought that this event, this topic of global demographics and how they're changing is something that could apply to a lot of disciplines. And it's good to see some people here from different classes. Um, and then I, I thought that as I researched this, it became even more apparent how important this really is. And just in my own research of looking through some of this data, it's hard for me to pick an event or a topic that is more important um, in the whole world right now. I honestly believe that because I think it's a, I think it's a trend. I think it's an issue that really influences almost any other issue that you could deem important. So it's one of those um, types of topics that's really influential. So I just want to go through a little bit of data first, and then maybe we could uh, talk about some of these trends and the implications that they might have. I remember not too long ago reading quite a bit about how there was a bunch of concerns that actually the world was getting too big, that we're going to have op overpopulation problems. And some of what I'm, much of what I'm going to say today is actually um, looking at maybe too few people. So first I just wanted to get into that just a little bit of some of the overview of the, the major differences that we've seen with world population. So we are still growing with world population. Currently, um, you know, we're going to be growing to about 9 billion uh, people worldwide in the next 40 years. However, some people are predicting that by the end of the century, we will have essentially plateaued and then going into the uh, 22nd century that we will see some population declines. Some one UN, one UN estimate actually predicts that by 2150, we could have half the world's population um, that we did at our peak in 2050. And one statistician, and maybe you've heard this one before, predicted that the last Japanese citizen will be born in about 2959, so in about 900 years, because they happen to be at the far end of the spectrum of having some of the lower birth rates and lower immigration and so forth that we'll look at later. So that's some of the major changes with total of world population. Um, and this is, I'm trying to get out of the way of my own presentation here. Um, this is very uneven, and that's maybe one of the things, if I don't have the videos that we can talk about, um, especially with what's going on in the world today with some of the uh, uh, movements that we've seen in the Middle East and in parts of Africa, M many of these demographic changes are so uneven. Um, about a third of all the countries are actually seeing population declines. Um, and some of, a couple of these countries are already experiencing these, these declines now, not just future projections. But the crux of what I wanted to look at today is not necessarily total population, but it's actually looking at how the distribution of age groups are going to evolve going through the future. So what do I mean by that? 
primarily, as you see with the title of this event, I'm interested in how the world is going to be changing. Some people call it global graying or global uh, aging. The proportion of people who are going to be uh, seniors. Some people define that as age 60 and older. Other people use age 65. But that proportion of people who fit this demographic are going to be increasing uh, tremendously. It's roughly been about 3% of the world's population over time that have been age 65 years and older. That's been fairly constant. And now we're looking at to where, you know, certain countries are going to be upwards of 45%, like Japan, 40% or upper 30% of the population for countries in Europe. Oh, we know some of the reasons for this. People are having smaller families. We know that, uh, you know, much of this is good news. I don't mean to make it doom and gloom. We have uh, people who are with us longer. We've made amazing advances in technology, medical technology, um, more access to public health, so life expectancy is longer. People are having fewer babies. And, of course, after World War II, many countries, at least in Western Europe and the United States and even Australia, had this major demographic boom, what we call the baby, baby boom, and they are getting into retirement age. So um, a couple of implications of this. Major focus of what I wanted to do today is looking at maybe the influence of some of the social spending programs, not just in the United States but in other countries. And some of the projections, and I'll show this in just a second, show that in many European countries, the number of workers per retirees is going to change tremendously to where there will be about two workers for every one retired person in the next 40 years. In this 4-2-1 phenomenon, has anybody heard this before in regards to China? One child, two parents, four grandparents. And many people are concerned that as, as, as the years go on, many people in China, um, they may actually grow old um, before they grow rich. And many people are going to be responsible for taking care of not only themselves, but potentially their parents and grandparents. So here's the major... Uh, trend that I, I wanted to focus on today, and I've already referred to it once, but you can see um, how, for the most part, and this starts back in 1950, but it's been fairly stable with the percentage of people who are age 65 years and older, and the number of people age 5 or younger has always outnumbered that age group of people age 65 years and older, but here in the coming years, that's going to change. All right. It's going really well. All right, so in the coming years, this is going to change. And as you can see uh, going forward, it's going to the people in the age group age 65 years and older are going to dramatically outnumber the people at five or younger. So apparently I'm losing power here as well. Um, this is just trying to show the proportion of people age 65 years and older. You can see that maybe on the left-hand side. 
in how this uh, is different in various parts of the world. So we can see that Europe is going to be by far the, the oldest or having the largest groups of people aged 65 years and older and uh, followed by North America. Now obviously there's a lot of countries within some of these uh, continents so there's a lot of differences within them. For example, Japan is, is definitely going to be um, the oldest country uh, in the years going forward, even though they've, as part of Asia, they fall about in the mid-range mid on this graph. This was uh, the graph I was referring to earlier about showing how the number of people who are of working age, I know this is coming through just a little bit fuzzy, but if you start back to 1950, um, where some of these programs were relatively new, Social Security, the number of workers we see on the left-hand side, and um, the number of workers per recipient that's eligible for Social Security, as we call it in the United States. In other countries, they've referred to it as a pension plan. But you can see how drastically that has changed just in the last 50, 60 years with the number of workers per recipients. And again, um, going forward, you can see that many of these countries, uh, including the United States, is just over about two workers per every one recipient. So that gets pretty tough. You know, the math just doesn't add up. We'll talk about the implications of that here in just a little bit. So the first video clip I wanted to show, we'll see if it works, uh, is from a uh, gentleman by the name of Richard Jackson. It's a brief interview. He, he overviews some of the data I talked about, but gets into a little bit more detail and um, also talks a little bit about the implications. So I'm going to start with this video, and hopefully it works, and then we can talk about it in just a minute. Okay, and as I tried to set up earlier, the biggest uh, area that I wanted to focus on later on, if we have time, would be the area that he referred to specifically dealing with health benefits and maybe exploring a case study with the United States and, and Medicare. But before we get to that, did you have any questions or comments so far with any of the trends or implications of the data that's been referred to so far? So the question was about some of the solutions that the um, the speaker had mentioned. Um, I don't. Ref I'm not sure what preceded those two off the top of my head. I'm not sure if somebody else caught those. But the the biggest point was with those solutions is that they're going to apply to different countries. Amongst developed countries, the United States is pretty much alone in that as far as worrying about um, population decline, the United States is okay in that regards, um, in large part because of the higher fertility rates and still with positive immigration. So I know those two particular points are, are not as applicable to the United States. Amen. The question was, one of the potential solutions available to countries is to extend the working age. And yes, that's definitely one of the possibilities. 
Um, and again, that's something I wanted to talk a little bit about later, but we, I mean, you mentioned it, we can discuss it now too. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? So some of these countries' benefits are tied to a specific age. So just for a point of reference in the United States, Medicare is approximately age 65. Social Security was originally um, recently 66, then raised to 67 for people who are a little bit younger. And there's some talk of raising that even further. What are some of the thoughts that you might have or maybe benefits or drawbacks to changing the eligibility age for some of these key programs? Yeah. Okay, so the comment was that one potential solution is for companies to not push employees who are of older age out of the workforce before they're eligible for some of these programs. I watched an interview of this gentleman, uh, Mr. Jackson, in a C-SPAN interview, and somebody had called and made a very similar point that um, many people who are, I think the, the cut point that the gentleman used was age 40 and above, but certainly age 50 and above, can have some difficulties getting um, a job. A lot of people are talking about all the hundreds of interviews or applications that they've filled out, and it's very difficult in some parts because of age discrimination and concerns that employers have for various reasons um, for hiring people um, who happen to be 50 years old. So that is a potential concern. What else comments, questions about maybe raising the eligibility age for some of these key programs? Did anybody notice what happened in some of the countries in Europe, such as uh, Greece or um, Ireland and others that toyed with raising the eligibility rates? In Greece, there was over a million people protesting just to move from age 60 to 62. Um, and in the United States, obviously, it's, uh, it's already higher. I've seen uh, Mr. Jackson in another interview where he brings up the point where if the eligibility age for Social Security was tied to life expectancy, we would already be at age 72 or 73 before you're eligible. Um, and if we continued that going forward in the next 30 years, it would be age 76 or 77. Now, many people, including what they do in Greece, they, depending upon the, the job that you have, you might have, for example, more physical demanding jobs might have, you know, um, ability for you to qualify at an earlier age, and that could be a potential option for the United States to address as well. The reason I ask for any comments or questions, I just think that on paper it would be a very easy solution to put into place and in, in many ways fix um, or, or really comprehensively address this issue. But then moving the yardstick, you, you start to... Uh, maybe get pretty upset when you feel like at a certain age you have paid into a system for all of these years and then um, they move the eligibility on you towards the end that you can get pretty upset about this and feel like you know you've already put in your time and paid your taxes and and this is something that was promised to you and now they're kind of changing it at the last minute and at least in the united states it's pretty clear that um, 
there doesn't seem to be too many politicians willing to stake a claim on those types of programs of raising eligibility um, requirements or even diminishing benefits of many kind. It's, it's what's sometimes referred to the third rail of politics and that it's very disastrous to your political career if you, if you embark in those types of changes. So it's something to consider. And I think he did that at the end by showing um, maybe the biggest concern is the ability of the political system to address these key issues. Any other comments or questions so far? With any of the I think that the comment being raised that it would be a, a lot harder, she gave a personal example and showing that much harder it could be for a relative who has to work those last couple of years uh, from age 64 to 66 and we know sometimes people are not in the best physical health as they age and sometimes work becomes very difficult um, and that is definitely a concern. And one way of really framing this, and it's at the essence of this particular question with benefits, is do you make it a, a little bit harder on everybody as far as maybe paying a little bit higher taxes? Currently, for example, with Social Security, I think it's about 6.2% of your paycheck that you're paying towards Social Security and your employer's matching that. Do you raise that to 7% or 8% or whatever the number you want to throw out there um, and make it a little bit harder for everybody else? Or do you raise the age limits when you qualify for some of these programs, making it a lot harder for one or two years of somebody before they're eligible for something? You know, and that's that's really at the, the, the crux of this. Yeah. Yeah, Social Security is a unique program in that it was supposed to be separate. It was supposed to be into a separate account, and um, your employer and your own contributions would go into a separate government account. That would only It was a trust fund established for Social Security. And yes, approximately in the 70s, it started being, you know, there was a huge, you know, uh, amount of money that wasn't being used that, uh, you know, you're paying who are eligible, but there was still you know, quite a bit of money left over and projections were showing that this was going to be solvent for all of these years. And then we did start to see some people seeing that as a treasure chest to take from to pay for other programs that, uh, for other, other government deficits that weren't being able to be funded in the, in the traditional bank account that we use to pay out some of the gov federal government's bills. Other questions or comments, Calvin? So the, the comment was about changing the caps, and, and this, this is actually a, a, a potential solution that has been discussed. So two things. When, when I mentioned that 6.2% payroll tax that you're paying for Social Security, that's only the first 102, 103,000 approximately dollars of, of, of your income. After that, it's not taxed at all. And maybe you've heard Warren Buffett make that comment about how he pays the same taxes as his secretary. That's what he's referring to, not income taxes, but the, the payroll tax. So there has been some talk of raising that to you know, a higher threshold so then more income is taxable for Social Security. That's a potential solution. The drawback to that is... Um, there's limits on how much you're eligible for with Social Security, so you, maybe you feel like you've paid more into the system than you're getting out because you're not going to be necessarily eligible for higher checks when you are eligible. That's a potential drawback. If possible, I'm going to change this debate to Medicare and the, the health care-related uh, issues with some of these government benefits and um, see what kind of questions you guys have for, for, for regards to health care.
All right, as I tried to set up earlier, this is only one amongst you know, n uh, numerous issues related to this uh, global aging trend. But what are some of your initial reactions or questions, comments? Yeah. The comment was that it's, you know, not an efficient use of resources um, for people who, in some cases, don't even wish to die that way. The, the question is, so yeah, Medicare, if they're eligible, if they're age 65 years or older, does pay for that. The question is, though, there was a gentleman who, who did wish to, you know, have every, anything done. And in the case of the woman, if, if there wasn't any document living well that indicated how care should be, oftentimes there may be, you know, two family members who can't agree how care should proceed, and neither wants to be the one that pulls the plug, so to speak, so care continues. Okay, like let's say it was me and I was in a terrible car accident. Like I'm 19 years old. I would, I still have the rest of my life to live. But like let's say like, a, like the 94-year-old guy, like, I understand he wanted to live and stuff, but, like, let's say his conditions were a little worse and, like, he had to be sedated all the time. Why would you try to keep him living? He's obviously not having a great life. He already lived his life to the fullest. You, there, Everybody dies. You need to come to that fact that you need to let that person go, especially if they're like a vegetable, practically. That's, that's not right to keep that person alive. The, the only way I would, the only comment I would add to that is that um, we as societies, I think at the end, that's the part that the reason I wanted to tie this in with the one book, one college, is that these are moral and ethical issues, and it's okay if society wants to have unlimited medical care regardless of your age for any procedure. That's fine, but you have to agree as a society to pay for that, and there's trade-offs. And I think one thing in the United States that's unique is that we haven't necessarily made these compromises. So if you wish to have unlimited care for everybody or senior citizens who are eligible for Medicare, then you have to be willing to foot that bill. It's something that's currently protected by law. And, you know, because of the, the baby boom gener generation and, and aging and life expectancy, this is going to take up such a significant part of the budget. You know, if you would like money to go for a new college or assistance for, to lower tuition or building new roads, there's just not money left over. So as a society, you have to agree to either increase, increase taxes or decrease benefits. So that's really, you know, the issue for you guys to, to grapple with. Ahmed?
said collectively as a culture, we really have to acknowledge that we're mortal. So that's one issue that they're not, you know, grappling with. Another another thing is like the so the like I always call it like the healthcare industrial complex kind of thing, because they're giving these people multitudes of tests and procedures that they don't necessarily need, even if, you know, some of the specialists in the back of their mind, they know that they're going to die within the month or within, you know, six months, but they're doing that, and I think it's kind of out of greed, because they know there's really not a tap on how much insurance companies uh, could provide for their patients. So, I mean, you, so that's another thing. So it's like a healthcare industrial complex kind of thing, and then people not, uh, you know, acknowledging that they're going to die, you know. Like they're saying they don't even talk about writing a will you know at age 94 that's kind of insane you know so one of the comments i originally had on here it's related to that incentives and ahmed brought it up they brought it up in the video there's really no in other industry that you can think of in the united states that operates this way where basically the law of supply and demand is really inverted here and so there's really no disincentive for you to use all the medical care possible and it is you know another related question to, to consider and over here so, so like um, instead of billing the hospital and the doctor separately they're just going to build a hospital and the doctor will just get paid from the hospital instead of getting two different payments or build separately or whatever. I'm trying to cheap it out, I guess. And I hear that they're starting to do that, I think, like next year or something, within Christ Hospital or something. Yeah, that's out of my area of expertise. I don't know if somebody else is familiar with that comment. It certainly could be. Um, I just kind of have a comment about in the beginning when they were talking about the lady. Um, she had 26 specialists here, and I just think that some of it was just companies trying to make a quick buck. Like, they said that they gave her a pap smear. I don't really get the point of that. It just seems like they're using the last few months of somebody's life to, like, fill their wallets. Like, some of those tests don't seem like they were really necessary. So does that happen a lot? or And if it does happen a lot, why? Just... It seems greedy and selfish and pointless. You know, this issue is really heated in many, you know, I think they showed a few clips. Maybe you remember some of this that summer before healthcare um, was uh, passed, but there was, you know, one, one element of healthcare bill was going to try to have $500 billion in savings over a course of a decade. That sounds great, but those savings are somebody else's medical care. And people, you know, for better or for worse, refer to that as the death panels and, you know, some sort of a group of medical professionals deciding, you know, how to do end-of-life care. And so, I, you know, I set it up this way. It really does pit generation versus generation. Um, but as strongly as you guys feel, you know, you might feel differently when you're age 82 and, and you need medical care to continue. But not to say I disagree, just to play devil's advocate. It's very interesting here all you young people say about that. But the main problem is that nobody wants to die. And when you get close to it, you want everybody to do whatever it takes. Now, I'm not saying living on a, uh, 
a machine that's going to do it, but making that decision is really tough. If somebody came to me and said, would you like to die, would you like to live, I would not pick death. <laughs> and that's how our system is based on. And it's a very complicated issue. All you need to have is a person in your family that you love that's dying. Our medical stuff is based on a lottery theory. Somebody will win, and you're hoping it's going to be you. Other comments, questions? So up in the front. So the, com the comment is that there's also a plethora of research that could be done for medical advancements as well. Comment up front. Everybody's been saying that, like, uh, you know, why do you want to let them live if they're terminally ill? But you got to also make the uh, decision at what point are they not worth saving anymore. So say it's, you know, you're terminally ill, you're going to die in three months. Should we stop it then? Or, you know, when you get diagnosed with cancer, should we just kill them then? You know, should we not try to give them chemo or anything? And you have to think about that. And I think the gentleman made some comment about how we can't do this on a case-by-case -case basis, in part for that reason, that there has to be some sort of a systemic attributes that, you know, that almost decide for us. But again, keep in mind, these are scary things. And some people, um, you know, feel that this is government going too far. And, um, you know, there's definitely a lot of people who, who feel differently. There's a in the back. Yeah, if I may, just for uh, purpose of differentiating who I, I agree with or understand with a little bit more, it's, if I may, the older gentleman here in the back. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so when you refer to the, the death panels and that, um, I'm definitely a person who opposes, you know, government overreach and, and, and a lot of the personal aspects of my individual freedom. Um, the death panels, and, and Dr. Bayak, the um, the individual that referred to um, how much is too much and what he believed in the most. I remember when I initially watched the 60 Minutes when it aired, and and how just appalled with him I was because one of one of the aspects of of you know as I will refer to it as Obamacare healthcare resolution um, was um, that there would be these um, end of life counseling sessions or. Um, or the uh, yeah the end of life counseling that would help the people come to an understanding and then also give them their choices available. Um, I think that when those choices and those options are being provided to an individual by a person who has their own ulterior mo motives and beliefs, as that as that person, Dr. Bayak, um, uh, questioned Charlie about and said, Charlie, do you want us to use CPR on you? And he says yes. And then he said, well, um, do, would you be okay with living in the ICU? And uh, Charlie said it beats the other option. And um, that's with the cameras on, you know. So it's like when we cut or have the government's hand in the pocket of health care, um, with the cameras on, the guy's even going a little further. With the cameras off and there's an old person ailing health, you know, it's easy to associate and make those judgments as as younger people that you know that we are 
Um, but I think when you're sitting in that room and you're uncertain and maybe you're alone and the only influence or communication you're getting is from someone who maybe doesn't have your own personal interests in mind and definitely, in the case of Charlie, didn't, as he specified here, um, that's when it runs the risk of how old's too old, when do we stop. I liked what the guy said here earlier, you know, just like, um, you know, who makes that decision? Cancer. People beat the odds all the time. And I think, you know, let them... I don't think we could just say let them die, you know, just as a, you know, we don't know when it's too much. We don't want to be taxed too much. But um, I know the young movement, you know, of those million people you refer to in Greece for the austerity cuts, um, those, uh, those definitely weren't, you know, 999,991 old dudes, you know. They were young guys because they didn't want to work an extra two years. And I think we got to look at the, the motives behind the movement, you know. And, yeah, just just keep coming up with advances. All right, good comment. Uh, other people would like to share? Yeah, it seems like the, uh, the the two different options that are that we have to solve the problem are either um, o overreaching government and either that or um, the uh, healthcare uh, industrialist hand in, in it, and you have to kind of look at which which two is the which one is the bigger evil, and which which one is more likely to solve the problems, and I guess do the best interest for everybody in the country. I mean, it's bankrupt or not living till you're like 110. I, I appreciate that um, you know framing it as an ideological issue. I think that's really true, but also I think we can have all of this, but you the part that we can't have is the not paying for it. And, you know, we have unlimited care. That's a choice we can make as citizens like other governments can make as well. But, again, you have to be willing. You know, I could show you the budget right now, and about a third of our budget is currently for Social Security and Medicare, one out of every three federal dollars going to essentially programs for senior citizens. That's fine. We've agreed to do this by law. We can continue to do that, but you have to be willing to pay for this. And if we want that quality care continued, then there's going to probably need to be higher taxes or some sort of a change in benefits. That's a decision that people need to make for themselves. Any other comments or questions? Raul? You know, Kevin, I have a friend who used to work at the Fed, Federal Reserve Board. He's an economist trying to crunch these numbers. And he had a buddy who did numbers. If we just gave everyone when they turned 65 monthly packs of cigarettes, it would cut life expectancy quickly, and then they would be gone. So might be on to something. There, there are probably a lot of creative ideas, but I think as citizens, the one thing we haven't done is really, you know, we want it all. That's, that's my only opinion that I have on this, is that we want unlimited care, but we want low taxes. Um, so your creative ideas, I sh you know, I think there needs to be some sort of uh, real, you know, in-depth discussion on this, and I'm glad that you guys uh, contributed all of your comments that you did. But just one last parting comment. I, I hope that you see that these global trends, I put my hands on the conversation and push us in this direction, but it certainly applies to a lot of different areas. Um, and, again, I appreciate all of you guys coming, and I uh, hope to see you at future events. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.